We are coming to a close in our series of working through the book of Nehemiah. And I am excited to say we've finally decided what book of the Bible we're going to go to next. So for those long-awaited, trying to figure out where I mean, we try to plan, God always changes things, right? Man plans, God laughs, someone said to me the other day. Uh, I think that's true. Uh, we're going to go to the book of Ephesians next. Super excited. I see some happy faces out there. We're excited about that. And we're going to do something that we have not done yet as a church. We, we're real quick. We, we try to fly at different heights above text. So sometimes we're going to fly to maybe the rate of a chapter uh, a week. Today we're actually going to do two chapters. We're going to do chapter 10 and 11. We we'll always preach, try to preach expositorily where the content and intent of the, of the passage determines the content and the intent of the sermon. But we try to fly at different heights. Sometimes we do a whole book overview. That's a challenge as a preacher. And, but uh, this time we're going to fly real low to the text. Uh, matter of fact, extremely low. Um, and right now Ephesians is planned out to be somewhere between 60 and 70 sermons. Okay? So we're going to be there for a long time. Maybe till Jesus comes back. But I will say this. Um, uh, if you know anything about D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he spent 232 sermons in the book of Ephesians. Uh, so he has like two sermons on just verse 1, and that's, for many of us, we just read verse 1 and go, okay, now let's get to the rest of it. Um, and each of his sermons are roughly 45 plus minutes. So anyways, we're going to go to Ephesians, we're going to try and fly real low uh, and just spend a lot of time in the book of Ephesians. So I'm excited about that, excited to just... We'll probably take a break here and there to discuss some other things and, well, preach on some other things. So, all that to say, we're in this book of Nehemiah. I wanted to make that announcement real quick. We're going to do 11 to 12 this week, probably finish up with 13 next week, um, and then probably start Ephesians the following week. Um, we're going to get to work through three things in Ephesians that I'm really excited about. One, we're going to get to work through salvation, uh, what theologians call soteriology. We're going to work through what? How does, what is really, what is God's work in salvation in Ephesians 1 and 2 and then even in 3, but particularly 1 and 2. And then we want to work through what it looks like, God's reconciliation within the church and unity within the church. What does that look like? Um, of course, that, you know, we're talking about like Christmas by now that we'll be talking through that. Uh, and then we're going to get into kind of the, the ethics of Christianity within the workplace, the home, and and so on and so forth, and then we'll finish up with the armor of God at the end of Ephesians. So, all of that, excited to, to run with that. So, Nehemiah. Here's how we kind of typically roll. We read through some verses, preach on it, read through some verses, preach on it, read through some verses, preach on it. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to follow right along. We're just going to work through the passage. I am, however, going to cheat today and leave out reading a big chunk for the sake of time. Um, You'll see where that part is, and I encourage you to go back and read that. I'm not skipping over preaching it. It's just um, for sake of time. So I want to give us a quick overview of Nehemiah to kind of catch us up. All, even those of us who have been here for the whole series, I want to kind of catch us up and bring us right up to as we walk into chapter 11 and 12. So if you think about Israelite history, we're sitting at about four or 500 years prior to the life of Christ. 
And what's happened is the people were living in God's place. Right? They're headed towards Canaan. They then became God's people in God's place, living in the land of Canaan. Everything was going well, but then they sinned. Sin and, God, and then as punishment, God ordained that they be taken then into exile. So this, this comes to Babylonian exile. The, then later the Persians take over. And so we have this exile. God's people no longer in God's place. Underneath God's judgment, living underneath a foreign ruler, not Yahweh as their ruler. During this time, then later, as we're leading up to Nehemiah, God raises up a man named Ezra who leads the people to rebuild the temple but is unable to rebuild the wall. So this is important. The temple is a place where God's people will do sacrifices and, and be made right with God and through, through God's provided means. And, and then the, the wall represents this is God's place. This is God's dwelling place. This is God's people in this place. So unable to build the wall. So then God raises up Nehemiah, who then in uh, the number what, 52 days, Nehemiah is able to rebuild the wall. He leads the people to rebuild the wall. And we kind of started there at the beginning of Nehemiah, talking about how Nehemiah was a reformer. And kind of about three uh, ingredients, if you will, for what a reformation, how a reformation takes place. The first one being that they, the reformer, the person, must have great or deep conviction about how things are supposed to be. How do we get those convictions? We find those convictions in God's Word. God declares these are how things are supposed to be and he as the designer he as the designer has the right to declare and define how things ought to be so we go to the designer to define how things ought to be so we can define our convictions but in order for a reformer to be driven towards reformation there must be a conviction about how things are to be and then second of all his heart has to be broken about it if the affections are not there then he's not going to do anything about it and then thirdly, a sense of God's call to do something about it. So here then, what happens is Nehemiah leads the people of God to build the walls around the city. To restore the place where God's people and His presence will dwell together. Now that the wall has been built, Nehemiah leads the people toward the heart of the problem. You see, all of Nehemiah is not about just building a wall. It's about establishing God's people as God's people in God's place. Leading the people of God back into relationship with God. You see, they were not dwelling in the city of God simply because there was no wall or even no temple. They were not dwelling in the city of God because they were not living, they were not being the people of God. It's the point of the exile. They were banished. They were, not, they were no longer being the people of God. So they're not living in the place of God. So now Nehemiah is leading them again to be the people of God. And what happened last week as we're coming into chapter 11 is that the people of God committed to do three very basic things. Three things that kind of impact the rest of Christian life or the, the rest of their life as God's people, I should say at this point. Those three things they talked, they committed to do. They made a covenant to keep the covenant. And those three things were temple worship, marriage, and Sabbath rest. And we, we discussed what that looks like for us as New Testament believers. But nevertheless, these three things kind of set the trajectory for different areas of life. Marriage sets the trajectory for everything familial related. And, and temple worship sets the trajectory of worship every day for the people of God. If they weren't right, 
and ceremonial worship and formal ceremonial worship in the temple, and they were not right with God the rest of the week. So it sets the trajectory for them. This week, however, we will see God physically bringing his people back into the city. So they're making commitments and preparations. Now people are going to actually be repopulating the city. Now I want us to stop for just a moment, kind of think big picture Nehemiah. What did Nehemiah leave in order to bring about God's business or God's agenda? Or as we say around here, God's kingdom. I mean, think about the Persian Empire. I mean, think about, think about what was in... what was in Artaxerxes' palace, the majesty of the place. And then to come from there to a place surrounded by rubble, a place that had fallen apart, a place that had been destroyed. I mean, think about all the people throughout the palace of Artaxerxes, running here and there to take care of the king, and doing this and that. And, And then from there, the text tells us that there were very few people in the city. So to go from lots and grandeur to very little and dismal place. But you see, this barren place is the place where God was at work. This barren place called Jerusalem that was in rubble, in ruin, is the place where God was at work. You see, we, it's kind of like... Uh, not we, but it's kind of like the barrenness of Sarah, right? Sarah and Abraham. It was in that barren womb where God was at work. Think about the slaves in Egypt, the slaves that were, that were being oppressed by the Egyptians. It was in those people that God was at work. You know, here's a Tolkien reference for you. It's like the harmless hobbits of the Shire, right? It was in those hearts that there was a great work happening. You see, we tend to look around and think that God's only at work in things like megachurches. Certainly God can be, but we tend to think that's, it's got to be big and grand according to our eyes for it to be God who's doing something. Or, or the athletes who you know, make peace signs to God after they put a touchdown, right? Or maybe for us it's the times following an emotional high in our Bible study time. Certainly that's when God's at work. Or even a church service where things seem to be perfect. Certainly it's in those grand times that God's really at work. I want us to think, do you know how God is building His kingdom? How is God bringing about Reformation. So we've been talking about Reformation as church and talking about people living, but how is God going to bring about Reformation in your life? How is He doing this? How is God bringing about Reformation in your marriage? How about your children's lives? How about your church family's life? How is He going to bring about, how is God bringing about Reformation in our city, in our culture? I mean, we see so much messy stuff going on in our culture How is God going to bring about reformation? How is God doing that? You don't want to let the cat out of the bag too soon, but God is doing this work as He builds His churches. As He builds His churches. He takes ordinary people, He takes ordinary lives and normal problems, and He uses them for His glory. 
He takes everyday rhythms of his people's lives that seem so insignificant and uses them to do something eternally significant. He leads his people to live for the things that matter most. Followers of Jesus, it may seem somewhat insignificant to come in here and gather on a Sunday morning or, or to go to Bible study each week or to pick up your Bible or to take the kids to school or to go to your workplace and all these things may seem so insignificant, but it's in the things that seem insignificant to us that God typically does a work. This is how God has designed his reformation of the world. He will build his people and they will live for him and lay down their lives for him and for what matters most. This is what God is doing right before our very eyes here in Nehemiah. He has led his people to his place. He has led the people to repentance. Now he is establishing them as his people. And 11 and 12 will be all about this people beginning to repopulate the place of God. Here's my proposition. God is a covenant-keeping God, so lay your life down for what matters most in order to pick up great joy. Let me say that again. God is a covenant-keeping God, so lay your life down for what matters most in order to pick up great joy. For those of you who know John Piper, I'm going to try not to sound too much like him. So pick up great joy. So first thought, first main point here. Reformers lay their lives down for what matters most. Reformers lay their lives down for what matters most. I use the term reformers because it's just what is familiar with us in this passage and what we've been talking about. But followers of Jesus lay their lives down for what matters most would be the more generic way to say that. Let's read Nehemiah 11, 1 and 2. We're going to stop right there. Now the leaders of the people lived in, Is- or lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. We'll stop right there. Kind of as a sub-point, if you're taking notes, understand what it meant for someone to live in the city. Understand, we have to understand what has it meant for someone now to come back into the city. What does this picture look like? First of all, I want you to see safety decreased. Living in the city, safety decreased. Think about it. If an army was to attack, where would they attack? The little farm on the side of the hill with, with the goats and the sheep running around? Or are they going to attack the city? They're going to attack the city, right? They're going to go after the city. They're going to destroy the city. Second thing, chances of prosperity decreased. Very little land, crops, animals. They were dependent on these things. How are they going to, how are they going to have crops? How are they going to have animals if they don't have land? There's little land to be had in the city. So, so think about this. Living in the city decreased both safety and decreased chances of prosperity. But I want you to think about the irony of the situation. The place where God would dwell, the holy city, by our definition, was not a good place to live. Nine out of ten stayed out of the city. You see, th- I think these people understood what was important, and that was God's kingdom. You see, choosing to live in the city, this wasn't the road to financial prosperity. It wasn't the road to family safety. It wasn't the road to happiness. It wasn't the road 
to their unredeemed desires. As dangerous and counterproductive as it may have seemed, this is where God was at work. This is where he was doing something. And these people were devoted to God and his plan and where he was working. If you read later on, and there's a couple references where they talk about them as men of valor, men of distinguished character. These people that were going back into the city, that they were brave to go back and do this. This was highly looked upon by the people. Now, how do we think about this in the New Testament context? I mean, this is, so we, we're, we're not Israelites. We don't live outside of Jerusalem. How do we think about this in a New Testament context where God does not dwell in a physical city, but instead dwells in the people? Right, so this is New Testament. How do we think about it? I, I want you to take you back real quick to the, the Abrahamic, or I'm sorry, the Adamic covenant, the covenant God made with Adam. They were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, right? They were commanded to, to, to not eat from the tree, and they were commanded to, to exercise dominion, be vice regents for God. But one of the particular thing in there was they were to be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because they were the only image bearers of God. And God was going to fill his earth, not just Eden, but the rest of the earth with image bearers of God. So now, though, in the new covenant, I propose that the then be fruitful, multiply, has been, we are to be fruitful, multiply, but it's replaced with go make disciples of all nations. Why? In order to fill the earth with the image of Christ. So now we go be fruitful and multiply, but particularly now in a New Testament sense, we do that by making disciples of Jesus. So why? So the earth is filled with disciples of Christ, with people who are following, people who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So now, so take those two pieces and follow with me. So now as we, as we go forward as, quote, mobile temples, right, places where the the Spirit of God dwells, where God dwells inside us. We're housing the presence of God. He dwells where His people go. And the goal is to fill the earth. So we, as God indwells us, as we go, we fill the earth with God's presence. Our, our call is not necessarily to go live in the city of God anymore, but to fill the earth with the presence of God. Right, so they're being called to go into the city to, to be in the presence of God. We're called to take now the presence of God and indwell the whole earth. And we do that as we make disciples, as Jesus commanded us. So with that thinking there, if you're a follower of Christ, let's think about Christ for just a moment and the incarnation. Jesus left all that was comfortable, safe, adventure advantageous, wonderful, in order to what? To take on flesh, to be ridiculed, eventually murdered at the hands of his creation. Jesus laid down his life for the benefit of others. See the similarity? See Israel is going back. Jesus comes. What are we to do? We are to willingly offer our life to do what is less advantageous for us, our family, in order to pursue God's kingdom. And the question is, is this true of you? Is this true of me? Am I willing to do what's less advantageous for myself, even for my family, in order to pursue God's kingdom? In order to pursue bringing about reformation? In order to pursue proclaiming the gospel and filling the earth with God's presence? 
Would those around you in your life affirm this? Where are you doing something that no one else wants to do? What are the ways in everyday normal life that you can choose to live in Jerusalem instead of out in your own little kingdom? Does that make sense? What are some ways that that you can forsake your kingdom to live in God's kingdom and and to, to pursue His? Let me give you an example Think about the way we talk, communication with coworkers, neighbors. You know, we all have opportunities. People are sharing things maybe they're struggling with. I got the opportunity to, to share with my postal, uh, my postman, delivery man. Um, and just 10 minutes of conversation. And we got to work through the gospel. And how, what it means for, to be redeemed and how do we love the church and but you know what would have been easy is as he was sharing the struggles that was going on in his life, it would have been easy just to say, oh, you know, buddy, it'll be okay. God loves you, you know. It'll be cool. You'll make it through. Be strong. And just to give him the wisdom of the world instead of sharing with him the wisdom of God. You know, let's think about the idea of sports. Why do you do sports? Like kids and sports. Is it just primarily so that the kid can have some fun? That's not nothing wrong with that. I want my kids to have fun. I want my kids to score the most goals too. But, but the question is this. How can you use it for God's purpose instead? Like how can soccer be used for building of God's kingdom instead of just the building of my kingdom? Where I feel good about my, my kids being happy. There's so much more to life than just that. That is valuable. I want my kids to be happy. But I want them to love God and I want the people around them to love God. Let me ask you parents. Do you want your kids to lay down their life for Christ? Do you want that? Do you want them one day to say, Jesus, here I am, I take me? If you lay your life down more for your job than you do for Jesus, your kids will probably do the same, mom and dad. You can't prioritize the things of building your kingdom and then have any expectation that your kids would do something different. They're watching it, mom and dad. They're watching it. If you want them to lay down their lives for Christ, you lay down your life for Christ. Now, God can certainly work in spite of your sinfulness, but my goodness, show them, display it for them, woo them with it. Singles, do you want a life with a spouse who will lay down their life for you? then you lay down your life for Christ and show any potential spouse that this is what you are about. I'm about Jesus. And you can be with me if you're about Jesus too. Right? So how do we reorder our lives so as to lay it down for Christ? One, I just a couple, couple of pragmatic, encouraging things here. One is be careful you don't lay down your life in a place that will bring you too much obvious blessing because it, you might be doing it just to serve yourself. Be just cautious about that. <clears throat> Second, very practically, the body of Christ, the local church is a place that God has given you to lay down your life for the benefit of God's kingdom. Just a couple practical points there. But live for what matters most. It's what God has called us to. 
Now, if you're not sure if you're a follower of Christ or kind of maybe seeking that or questioning that, I want to speak to you for just a moment. What you live for really displays the status of your relationship with God. What you live for, what you hope in, what would you die for, that really kind of displays pretty, pretty clearly your relationship with God. So what do you live for? The paycheck? Maybe the approval of other people? Maybe the ability to express yourself as who you really are? I mean, all these things you're living for will only end you in a place that is empty and ultimately without hope for all of eternity. Those things are going to keep letting you down and letting you down. That paycheck's going to let you down and let you down and let you down time after time again. Other people and their approval is going to let you down and let you down. But you see, just as these people who were hoping to dwell in the presence of God, ultimately, we all end up in one or two places. We all end up either enjoying the presence of God for all of eternity and now, or we end up being in eternal punishment separated from God for all of eternity. Now, the way we enter into a relationship and enjoy His presence for all of eternity is for someone or for you to somehow pay the price for your sin. But the fact is, is you can't. I can't. No one can pay the price for your sin except Jesus. And Jesus paid the price for your sin so that you could live in the presence of God. So you could be right with God. And the Bible tells us that we should ask Him to forgive us of our sins and believe that He paid the punishment for us. That's how we have to live in the presence of God. For all that, in the presence of God, that's where hope never fades. That's where joy never ends. Amen. All right, so I encourage you to do that. Ask Him for forgiveness. Believe that He paid the punishment for your sins. Throw yourself at the mercy of God. All right, so back to the, the point here overall. Reformers lay their lives down for what matters most. You know, Jesus said something very similar. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said this, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, what? Let him deny his kingdom, right? Let him deny his kingdom and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him give up all of this so that he can follow me. All right. Let's go on to Nehemiah chapter 12. So from, chap- from 11.3 to 12.26, go read that later if you haven't read it already. I'm going to jump to 27. There's a bunch of lists of names and such there, all leading up to verse 27. We're talking about the dedication of the wall here. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites. Netophathites, there we go. Also from Beth Gagal. And from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, and for the singers, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up 
onto the wall and appointed two great choirs and gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. And after them went Hoshaiah and half of the leaders of Judah. And Azariah, Ezra, Meshalam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests, sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, and son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azrael, Melali, Galali, Maai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, and the musical instruments of David, the man of God. <clears throat> and Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David. At the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim. And by the gate of Yashanah, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of Hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I, and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, and Messiah, and Menamin, and Micaiah, and Elianah, Elianai, yeah, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets. And Maasaiah and Shemaiah and Eli, Eliezer, Uzi, Uzi Jeho, Jehohonana, right? <laughs> Makajah, Alam, and Esther, and, and the singers sang with Jezahiah as their leaders. And they offered great sacrifices that day. Listen to these words and rejoiced. I mean, think about where the people of God have come from. For God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I mean, think about the picture here, right? The people have come back into the city. Here they are. And Nehemiah puts them in separate groups. And not only, if you remember earlier in Nehemiah, when they say the fox, they were being taunted. And they said that the, if a fox walked up on the wall, it would make it crumble. So not only is there a, not a, just a fox up on the wall and the wall is holding, but, but people, lots of people, multiple choirs are walking around the wall. And it's not falling. Instead, what happens is they praise God. They rejoice. They are God's people in God's place. You see, laying your life down for God's great glory brings you great joy. Living for what matters most, as God defines what matters most, brings you great joy. So here we are, temple rebuilt, walls standing, gates secured, people have covenanted, people have been chosen to live in the city, now the people celebrate. I want you to think about the significance of the celebration. This is the place where God's people live. This is the place where God's rule is followed. I mean, think about this, it's very unique. The rest of the world wants to follow everything else. This is the place where the God and His rule is followed. This is the place where God's people experience God's blessing. Ultimately, this is the place where Yahweh's name will be made known to the nations. So radiating from the dwelling place of God is how His name will be made known. Obviously, that looks a little different in the New Testament. The hearer, radiating from the dwelling place of God is how his name will be made known. 
Notice in this passage the continued journey and purification. They were setting things apart, the gates, the walls themselves. They understood that everything was God's. They wanted everything that was God's to be purified and to be worthy for God. They understood that this place and them as God's people needed to be different than the rest of the world. Now I want you to notice, kind of step back with me in the text, and notice kind of a, a big pattern that we see going on. Now you have to reach back to a little earlier in Nehemiah to see that God rescues his people. That God is the one who always initiates the salvation. God is always the one who begins the process. They were in exile, and what happens is God rescues them and establishes them as His people once again. So this is what's been happening all throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. God is reestablishing, bringing them. He is rescuing them from exile. And then what happens? Verse 43 that we just read, and they offered great sacrifices that day. So God has to bring them to this place where they now offer sacrifices. They didn't just do this on their own. They just magically reappear here. God worked miracles to bring his people to the point where now they react to God's work in sacrificing on that day. I want you to think, if you're a follower of Jesus, God rescued you. From the darkness and destruction of your sin. Amen? Amen? You were an enemy of God destined to bear the wrath of God, not just for a day, but for all eternity. You were exiled from the presence of God just as Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. And then by a mighty rush of grace and mercy, yet utterly tied to His holiness and justice, God reached His hand down through the blood of His Son and rescued your soul from the grip of Satan and death and destruction. You've been rescued, but you've not been rescued just from the destiny of hell. You've been rescued to a life and dwelt by God now. Amen? You've been rescued You've been rescued, though, to a life of building God's kingdom, one that will never fall. You've been rescued to lay your life down so that you might pick it back up again. You see, on that thought, you see, without the rescue work of God, when you lay your life down this side of eternity, you lay it down for good, for eternal destruction. But because Jesus defeated death, and when God rescues you, when you lay your life down this side, for his kingdom, you will one day pick it back up again on the other side. So God rescues his people. So we're talking about a pattern here. God rescues his people. Then what happens? God's people, God rescues his people to what? To great joy. Nehemiah 12, 43, going on in that verse. And they offered great sacrifices that day. And what? They rejoiced. For they did things to make themselves rejoice. No, why? God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. How did God make them rejoice? I think the context answers this question. The work He did in bringing His people to repentance so that they might once again be the people of God and build God's kingdom. I think that's what God did to make His people rejoice. And that's why I say to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, God has done the same thing to you. He's rescued you from sin and darkness and hopelessness. And he's rescued you to be his child in his kingdom, doing his work for a joy that never ends. Why don't we as Christians, we live that way. 
We should live that way. We should believe that. Love God. Live for His joy. You see, I think oftentimes, Christians, we don't live for this great joy because we're so wrapped up and satisfied in the temporary joy that this world brings us. The joy we get from a paycheck. The joy we get from the happiness of our kids. The joy we get from a clean home, a successful sports team, a boss that likes us. I mean, certainly these are all not all bad things in and of themselves. But what about the joy of the Father one day saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus says, I get joy from my obedience to the Father. What about Jesus being, God being satisfied with you? Does that bring you joy? Look at what we get when we lay our life down for the reformation that God's called us to. We get great joy. I mean, what a deal. What a deal. Right? Lay your life down. Get joy. Doesn't make any sense to this world, right? And I think that's why we often, we want to pick up our life so we can have joy. He says, lay your life down and you can get great joy. They're in the Persian Empire. They just stomped out half the world. And they're like, we're going to be our own city. They're laying their lives down. We want to be God's people. And we don't care if King Artaxerxes is on the throne. Who cares? We're going to be God's people. Why? Why? Because God's done a great work. What do we get? We get great joy. Guys, God has set us free from the temporary and deflating and joy that lets us down in this world. He has set us free from that and has rescued us to great joy. So we're talking about this pattern. I think we see it in verse 43 all here. God rescues his people. God rescues his people to great joy. God rescues his people to great joy. So his name is made great, made great among the nations. God does this time and time and time and time and time again. God rescues his people, not just so that they would have great joy, but so that his name, through their great joy, would be made known among the nations. Look at verse 43 again. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. All of this for what reason? So that God's name is made great among the nations as God's people enjoy the presence of God and God sovereignly brings about a faithful people building his kingdom. The people, they heard it far away. I mean, think about this picture, right? I mean, they're, they're singing and celebrating the joy they have in the Father and the nations hear it. They hear it far away. And the question I have to ask both to myself and us, is do the nations hear the joy you have in the Lord? Do people around you hear the joy you have in God? Do your neighbors hear the joy you have because of the rescuing work of the Father? Maybe it's because the joy that you express is wrapped up in a kingdom that looks very similar to theirs. I can have that joy too. There's no need. Why would I change my God for your God? Your God looks just like mine. My God can build just as beautiful of a city. 
Guys, the work of God always leads to joy in God, which inevitably resonates among the nations. Let me say that again. The work of God always leads to joy in God, which inevitably resonates among the nations. I would caveat that. <coughs> you, you can be doing the work of God, but you can be doing the work of God for yourself. You can be doing the work of God for God. Always leads to joy in God, which inevitably resonates among the nations. This is what God's done here. God rescues his people, it's led to their great joy, and it's resonating among the nations. Your co-workers feel the reverberating effect of the joy of God in your life. Something I've repented of lately with my neighbors. And I hustle and bustle around my house all the time, doing this, that, and who knows what. <clears throat> that I finally gave my neighbor a hug for the first time this past week. I mean, I think he felt pretty awkward, but, you know. <laughs> we got done talking through some struggles in, in his life and cross that God's called him to bear. And, and we got done, man, went to shake hands, man, give me a hug, cross the fence, you know. <clears throat> Let's go on to Nehemiah 12. <clears throat> we'll work through the last point here. Verse 44, on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to what? Pay attention here according to the command of David and his son Solomon. That's important. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the day of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So last point here. Laying down your life for God's great joy comes easier when you believe that God keeps His promises. When you believe God keeps His promises, when you know God keeps His promises. And a sub-point there is you must know what God has said and the story of Him doing it, right? <clears throat> In order to know that God keeps His promises, you've got to know what promises, what has God said, what is the story of God, and what has He done? I mean, it's really pretty simple. Many of us don't lay our lives down because we really just don't know God. We may have grown up in church our whole lives, and we have no clue who God is. He's the dude that sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins, and that's enough for me. There's a whole lot more to the gospel than just that. I mean, certainly that's of eternal value. But there's a whole lot more to God than even that, as glorious as that is. We are experts, listen to me church, we are experts at anything and everything that makes us temporarily happy. Food we like, the amount of sleep we want, the way we spend our money, we're experts at all those things. But when it comes to God, we just simply maybe just know a couple cool ideas about Him. And then we wonder why we can continue to lay our lives down for things that are frivolous and unimportant and leave us empty at the end of the day. You see, what's going on here is that the Torah... <clears throat> 
had stipulated, the first five books of the Bible stipulated everything that is mentioned here in this passage. Everything that they were doing was stipulated by God. God had said, you should do this to live a life faithful in response to my saving work. You should live this way. You should do these things. And so they're doing these things. So they obviously studied Scripture and understood its requirements. They went to the Word of God. What, what does it look like? What, God, have you told us to do? How how can we be faithful to you? And they committed themselves to make sure that God, what God required was accounted for. They set apart the first fruits. They gave contribution that was required. You see, God's people have faith in their covenant-keeping God. This is not an option. God's rescuing work necessarily brings about the response of faith in the covenant-keeping God. It's another way of saying God keeping His promises. I'm saying kind of the same thing a different way, a covenant-keeping God. Now, I know, I know, some of us have Sunday school answers to the promises of God. Promise to prosper you, promise to keep you safe, promise to take you to heaven someday. Those, those, are, those are all great. But what promises spurred on the people of Israel here? That's what I want to get to. What promise spurred on the people of Israel? Look at 45. And they performed the service of their God and the services of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to what? The command of David and his son Solomon. What's going on right now is because of the command that was given to David and his son Solomon. What is the command of David? This is what God has commanded David, what God has promised to David. So what's happening is, is it declares that this is what's happening, what they're doing. That even though the first temple was destroyed, the Davidic covenant, that temple was destroyed, they believed that the promises that God made to David, that he would still fulfill those promises. He had made promises to David, you build this temple, you'll be my people, do these things, and even though it was destroyed, they go, no, God will still keep his promises, even though that was destroyed. They believed that God was still pursuing his covenant, ultimately, I believe, to Abraham, to have a people and to dwell among these people. And God was doing this, that he was still in the process of making a people for himself. They believed the Abrahamic covenant was still, God was still going to do what he promised. They believed that God was still pursuing his covenant to David to dwell in Jerusalem at the temple and for there, there for God's glory would spread throughout the whole earth and his people would be a blessing to the nations. And it's the same promise I believe should fuel us today. I think the Abrahamic covenant, that promise should fuel us today. God has promised to make a people for himself. God has promised that he would dwell in a land with those people. And God has promised that we will be a blessing to the nations. Now, I think that I don't want to get into land promise and all those things and none of that kind of but, <clears throat> but here in the New Testament, God dwells in his people. And where we go, the presence of God goes. So he has still promised to bring a people to be his people, to dwell in them, and then from them to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Let me ask you a question. Do you want that promise? Do you want to be God's people? 
You want to dwell in God's land? You want to be a blessing to the nations? Do you? Do you want to extend God's glory over the earth? Do you want to see God's name worshipped? Do you want to see the people on this earth enjoy the freedom from sin that you have? Do you want that? These people lived as the people of God because they believed that God would keep His covenant that He had made with Abraham and His covenant He had made with David long, long, long ago. And we, as New Testament followers of God, have a new covenant. It's really a fulfillment of these things. A covenant where the blood of Jesus washes our sins away and gives us new hearts and promises to keep us until the day He returns. Amen? Amen. God has promised to use the simple, the weak, the insignificant to bring glory to His great name. He is building churches with people who live normal, everyday lives but are surrendered to building God's kingdom. He has promised to reclaim this world for His glory, and He is doing that as His people catch God's vision to fill the world with people who love Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. As we live out what Christ commanded us to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. You see, Jesus laid down his life. He gave up what was most advantageous to him, came to this earth, laid down his life for, for what matters most, right? Not my will, but your will, Father. For God's kingdom. And the question for us today is, won't you do the same? Won't you do the same? You will, I believe, if God has done a saving work in you, and you believe God is a covenant-keeping God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We'll sing a song of, of response to this time, and, and then after that we'll be dismissed. Father, Father I want to be among your people. I know there are many days that I don't want, that I just want to be my own people, or I want to make my own people. Be king and reign and rule in my own life. But, but Father, you are a much better king than I am. You're a much better ruler than I am. And your place and your people are so much sweeter than anything that my hands could ever build. I pray that that is all of our prayers. That we, we recognize that we make terrible kings. And Father, we, 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 if we've been rescued by your saving work, that we, we should want to be your people, Father. To want, want to lay our feet at your throne, lay ourselves at your throne and bow our heads. Oh, you have been so gracious to us. I pray that if there's anything, any part of us that is unrepentant this morning, that Father, you, you would grant us the repentance, that we would be your people. And that, Father, we would know the joy that surpasses anything that this world can come up with. Father, just thankful for your saving work in our lives. Father, let this time of singing be a time for us to reflect on, on your faithfulness. 
And Father, I trust that your Holy Spirit is plenty good at leading us to respond well to your word this morning. Father, your word demands a response. And so let this be a time when our heart responds to you. And Father, we give you praise. It's in your son's name we pray.